1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, un, I'm sorry, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, good morning. I think the last time I was here speaking, I think I said something about, you know, we can't, we can't earn our righteousness through works and made some sort of jokey reference to being called back to preach again. So here I am, so it must be a miracle, right? <laughs> but if you would now allow me to boast a little bit this morning for the 17,236th straight day, I got up out of bed to face the world. I mean, it... It hasn't been easy. There are days when I just didn't want to. And yes, I had some help in the very early days, thanks to my parents. And I also know a number of you out here are way past me. And some of you are starting out, you know, mid-thousands. Maybe you're hitting a wall and wondering, you know, what's the secret? What gets you up out of bed day in, day out, over 17,000 straight days through the aches and the pains and sadness and loss and seemingly never-ending sea of problems? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that it's not coffee it's hope. Hope is what gets you out of bed. And I know some of you are saying, no, it's coffee. <laughs> and many of you are saying, no, it's my mom or dad after they get their coffee. Or maybe you're thinking, it's my job, the neighbor's barking dog, or unopened Christmas presents under the tree, or the need to go to the bathroom. Yes, on the surface, all true, but underneath all of that is hope. Because hope, in its most basic sense, is simply a feeling of wanting something to happen or be true. Seems kind of obvious, right? We don't often think about things like getting out of bed or going to work or going to school in terms of hope, that is, until the stakes get higher. When there's a career-defining presentation at work to the board, when it's the morning of the SAT, when you're in the finals of the championship game, when the final building inspection is gonna take place, when your child wakes up with a high fever 
and has lost their sense of taste. I mean, hope starts to matter once we have something to lose. Inevitably, things don't turn out the way we hoped. And after repeated disappointment, hope becomes less reliable. We start calling it false, which we avoid at all costs because a false hope is worse than despair. And sadly, the more we realize that the world we live in is a difficult and fallen place, the more hope we need. And yet, the harder it is to be hopeful. Oh, but we say, we've gotta keep moving. We need grit. There are problems to solve and progress to, to be made and we can't just stay in bed and hope things will change. There's a popular phrase in business, political, and military circles that says hope is not a strategy. You know, we need a game plan, a real solution, concrete action steps and goals and accountability. Wishful thinking, pie-in-the-sky optimism isn't going to do it. This morning, we're going to look at three verses with a lot to say about hope. But it's not the kind of dead-end hope that leaves you guessing and tired and eventually left with a sense of futility. But it's a hope that serves as an anchor to your soul so that no matter the circumstances this world brings your way, there is a certainty, an assurance of not just getting through it, but of prospering beyond it, more so than we could imagine. The Bible refers to it as a living hope, and it is a strategy. It is God's strategy to help you move forward in a world that looks to push you down. And before we get into the word, would you please bow and pray with me? Our Father in heaven, today as we look into your word, I ask that you would show us great and mighty things. As we consider that which angels long to look, and that for which all of creation waits with eager longing. Things about which we have no way of understanding unless you open blind eyes and deaf ears. And I pray that this would not just be to satisfy a sense of curiosity or a sense of duty or even to be entertained but rather out of a genuine love for you, which you, more than anyone else, knows is our heart's greatest need. For this we pray in the strong name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. As we just read, 
The text for this morning comes out of 1 Peter 1, and in this letter, the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians who he refers to as and addresses as elect exiles of the dispersion. They are scattered, dispersed, living in a number of Roman provinces, but they're never really at home. And the reason he calls them elect exiles of the dispersion is because he's addressing Christians, the elect, who are living in a non-Christian world, an anti-Christian world, a world in which they don't fit or belong. And Peter knows this because, well, it's his reality also. And so he identifies with their suffering as misfits, if you will. You know, life's hard enough when you do fit in, you think. Now you add the whole Christian weirdo part and it gets a lot harder. Singing songs and worshiping Jesus and talking about him is a lot easier in here than, say, at work where you might get excluded from the inner circle, passed up for promotion. Or at school where you might be labeled a weirdo, ridiculed. Or in a bar where you would get kicked out or say in a hostile country where you could be arrested, beaten, even killed. So Peter has something to say to exile Christians living in difficult contexts with people who are anti-Jesus, if you could say. If you've ever experienced a struggle as a Christian of, you know, that feeling of being in the world but not of the world, you might relate to this. There are trials that come your way simply for the fact that you want to follow Jesus. There's suffering that you have to endure simply for the fact that you want to follow Jesus. Not a popular expectation in our society where comfort is sought out with a vengeance. Paul said in 2 Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so Peter in his letter to suffering exiles in a difficult fallen world, right from the start, highlights what he refers to as a living hope, which is our text for this morning. And in three verses, we're going to look at three things, three simple things about this living hope, where it comes from, how it comes to us, and what it looks forward to. So after addressing the elect exiles of the dispersion, Peter jumps right in. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've ever written to someone going through a lot of struggle or pain, openings aren't always easy. You know, Peter doesn't begin with, hey, 
you've made it this far. You've got this. Keep on grinding. You can do it. We're here for you. No, he, he begins by bursting out in praise and thanksgiving to God the Father. In times of uncertainty and difficulty, when the storms of life come crashing, what we desperately need most is an anchor. And the anchor that you drop, it better be immovable. Because if it's not, your boat will be lost at sea. Peter is drawing our attention to the anchor. God, our Father, who, according to his great mercy, has reached down and caused us to be born again to a living hope. He did not respond to a request, react to a situation, or passively allow this. He caused it. The Father looked upon our helpless, spiritually dead condition and acted first. That matters. He took a callous, rebellious heart. We didn't really want anything to do with him. To look upon the cross where his son was killed in our place and to behold a love so unfathomable that we could not help to gaze. And then the eyes of our hearts were opened to respond in repentance and faith. The result was our being cleansed from sin and the receiving of God's very own spirit. And this is what he means by being caused to be born again. It's not a physical birth from the womb a second time or anything. It's a spiritual birth for the first time. And with that spiritual birth came a living hope. And so the origins, where it comes from, the origins of this living hope is in that which was caused by the Father, in the work of his Son, Jesus Christ on the cross. Our living hope comes from God, which is a key, key distinction. It's not generated out of the air. It's not luck or chance or crossed fingers, like when we say, I hope I get an A on the test. I hope I get a good performance review. I hope that deal goes through. I hope I don't get COVID. I hope I get to heaven. You know, in order to hedge against that kind of uncertainty, we, we, we learn how to supplement that type of hope with the right efforts, don't we? Study harder, work more hours, take less risk, follow the golden rule. This kind of hope, what's the source? It's us, it's mankind. 
Upon winning the 2008 presidential election under the messaging of hope and change, former President Barack Obama in his victory speech said this. He said, hope is the belief that destiny will not be written for us, but by us, by the men and women who are not content to settle for the world as it is, who have the courage to remake the world as it should be. That's powerful and persuasive rhetoric. And it has the weight of the presidency behind it. But this hope has a very different source than the living hope that comes from God. In the Bible, hope is always connected. That is, it's based in or sourced in the unchanging character of God. Remember, Peter said, according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. This hope was born of God's mercy towards rebels. His love that sacrificed his own son. His power to raise the dead and enact spiritual birth. He is the only sovereign one, omnipotent over everything. What he says is so and what he promises is absolutely true. Man, no matter how persuasive, how capable, how connected, how resourceful, is not. And so hope sourced in ourselves is vastly different than hope, a living hope sourced in God. Because God is an immovable anchor. And that's why Peter starts off by breaking out in praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I ask myself, when was the last time that I broke out in praise and thanksgiving to the Father for giving me hope? Which leads us to our second point. First was, where did it, well, where did it come from? And now we're at, how did it come to us from God? Peter said that God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so the obvious question follows, how does the resurrection of Jesus Christ give us hope? Well, before we address this, now might be a good time to check in with yourself. Do I actually believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? As in, Jesus stopped breathing, had no pulse, no brain function, dead at the scene of the cross. And then, three days later, after he was buried, he's breathing, his heart's pumping, He's walking, talking, eating, drinking. And there's no shortage of books and articles and scholarly, scholarly debate on, on the historical reality of the resurrection. You know, I, I imagine the debate will continue all the way up until Christ returns and the matter is resolved. But the burden of proof lies with the skeptics. 
Because meanwhile, ever since the discovery of the empty tomb, right, the existence of Jesus, his death, that's not debated. But the discovery of the empty tomb since then and the subsequent eyewitness testimonies of the disciples, hundreds of them, the church over the past couple thousand years has been established and grown. It has done, th it has done so through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has not changed since. And that message has not lessened in its absolute dependence on the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, we could spend hours and hours discussing, you know, what's the best possible explanation for existing evidence? You know, unlike the Apostle Thomas, you remember, who had the privilege of seeing and physically touching the resurrected Jesus to believe, I pray we could count ourselves among those that Jesus had in mind when he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. If that is you, then you are blessed because according to God's great mercy, he's caused you to see the resurrection through the eyes of faith when you were born again. And if that is you, then this living hope is yours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which gets us back to the question then, how does the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, how does that make us hopeful? And there's three reasons. The first reason is that the resurrection validates the truth claims of Jesus, right? If he didn't rise from the dead, right? If you're just a decayed body in the tomb, how hopeful would you be about the things that he said when he was alive, right? That in three days he was going to rise? No, that didn't happen. He's the son of God? That he gives his sheep eternal life and they will never perish? Resurrection is a powerful confirmation that what Jesus said about those very things was true. That was reason one. Reason two, the resurrection of Jesus is the evidence that his death on the cross that is as the payment for our sins so that we would be made righteous was actually accepted by the Father. Now, okay, a picture that might help us with that is let's say I'm in jail. And the only way out is to satisfy a judge who's demanding a million dollar bail payment. Until I know that bail was fully paid, I cannot walk out of jail on my own volition, okay? So for me to walk out of jail requires two things. It requires one, full payment, the million dollars, and it requires me knowing that the judge is satisfied with that full payment. And so when we look at the resurrection, the $1 million payment is the death of Jesus. My knowing that that full payment was made 
and it satisfies the judge is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If Jesus was not raised, it would indicate that his death on the cross was not enough. Not enough to atone for our sin. Why? Because the only indication that an acceptable substitute for the sins of the world was made would be Christ's not being dead. His rising to life over the condemnation of death. If he did not, we could deduce then that the wrath of God was not satisfied. The judge said no. In which case, we would still stand condemned for our sin. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said, if, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. How would hope exist if the death of Jesus was not enough to atone for our sin? You know, if we still stood condemned before God, we would be left to what? to find hope in the air, chance, our efforts. But because the resurrection confirms that it was enough, that the sinless Son of God crucified does actually satisfy the full just demands of God, we can be certain that what Jesus accomplished, that is, our forgiveness, our justification, was a success. You know, I need to know that God and I are no longer estranged because of my sin. I, I just can't be right with him if I don't know that for certain. And that's what resurrection confirms. And the last way that living hope comes through resurrection, the, the last way that resurrection makes us hopeful is that it reveals our future destiny because we are now united with him okay so paul says in romans 6 he says if we have been united with him in his death we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his the idea of the christian is as Jesus goes, so go I. Jesus' death to sin counted as my death to sin. Jesus' righteousness now counted as my righteousness. Jesus' resurrection to life is now and will be my resurrection to life. If you've ever seen a baptism, it's the very lived out symbolic picture of this baptism which is the commandment of the lord to those who've been born again that is our faith declaration of now being in union with christ right having died with him you go under the water depicting death and a cleansing from sin right and now resurrected to life with him, we come out of the water. So looking ahead to our future, with a living hope, we hold secure the words of Jesus in John 14, when he said, because I live, 
you also will live. If Jesus was not resurrected from the dead, that statement would have been proven false. But because he does now live, we can be sure that we will live too. So the reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it is the guarantee of life beyond the grave for us who believe. Because Jesus' words were shown to be true, his work on the cross was shown to be effective, and his life to which we are now united was shown to be eternal. That is our living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be the name, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we've spoken about where living hope comes from. It comes from God. Living hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And our last point, living hope looks forward to an inheritance. And this is in verses 4 and 5. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. When I was young, I used to count the money from the cash register at my dad's store. I would lay out the stacks of bills, and as I look at it, I would inevitably ask him, Dad, can I have some of this? And his answer was always, Everything I have is already yours. I liked that answer. At the time, it was because I wanted the money. But now, as I remember and think back, it's because I know his heart. Our Heavenly Father has caused us to be born again for an inheritance of unimaginable glory and the only way that Peter can describe it, since we are imperfect, finite beings, the only way he can talk about it, since we have no category for eternal perfection, is to say what it's not. It's not able to die. It's not defiled by sin. And it, it's not fading over time. If you ever tried to imagine what something like that is like, you would have a hard time. Everything that we currently experience in our broken and fallen world is the exact opposite of that. But it's a great exercise of the imagination. And Peter also calls this inheritance in verse 5, he, he refers to it as a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What is that? I thought we were already saved. Well, so while salvation by God's mercy and bringing about faith and the, the finished work of Christ's death and resurrection, it's 
It is past and completed, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's past, that's done. But there is an aspect of our salvation that is still future. And this is what Peter says is ready. It's ready to be revealed in the last time. It is the completion of God's great redemptive work when Christ returns, when we will be united with him perfectly, when all creation is physically renewed, right? A new heaven, a new earth, a new body, a new creation. No more sorrow, no pain, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. This is the inheritance that our living hope looks forward to. What do you look forward to? There are many things that I look forward to. I look forward to putting grass in my yard. I look forward to worship service with all of you. I look forward to my kids growing up. I look forward to going on walks with my puppy. I look forward to growing old with my wife, who's not here. And I'm hoping, and I'm hopeful, that these things will bring me joy. But I know that sometimes they don't. I mean, grass withers. Some of you might have COVID. Kids stop calling. Puppies get parvo. And wives, well, sometimes they're just too good for our own good, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 19 is a very sobering verse for me. It says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we are setting our hopes on this life only, maybe even adding Christ to those hopes for good measure, we are the most miserable of people. Why? Because in this life, the only certainty that we have is death. There is no soul-anchoring hope for this life alone. And what the Son of God accomplished on the cross through his death and resurrection, it points us beyond this life to the certainty of future salvation. Did you know that what keeps you attached to that anchor? Well, that's your faith. Did you know that that is also a work of God's power? What secures you to cling to this living hope, sourced in God through the resurrection of his son, to this inheritance of unimaginable glory, that's also a work of God in you. Oh, but my faith is so weak. 
I don't know if I can hold on. And Peter is saying, yes, you can. Because the merciful God who caused your birth through faith is also the one strengthening that faith so that you would persevere and keep going. So in conclusion, if you remember the context in which Peter wrote, if you recall, we were talking about was Christians living as exiles in the world. And these were Christians who were dealing with basic life things. If you were to read Peter, you'd, you'd see him talking about things like conduct while people are watching, loving people who hate you, living under authorities who are corrupt or unjust, working under slave-like conditions, impossible marriage relationships, social image, beauty standards, slander, revenge, peer pressure, doing the right thing when it's hard. I mean, this was first century Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, in the Roman Empire, but it could easily be San Ramon, Danville, Walnut Creek, San Francisco. While we wait for Christ's return, we will be persecuted and assaulted. We will have to wade through the values of the world that fly in the face of faith that seek to displace your living hope for eternity with the dead-end hope that's concerned for this life alone. The message of the day is eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. And we will be tempted to exchange the glory of our immortal God with the capabilities of mortal man. And we will be taught to trade the truth of God's word for lies. If you read down a little more in Peter's letter in verse 13, he says, Therefore, in light of this living hope, this God-gifted, God-guaranteed through the resurrection, this God-secured hope in our glorious inheritance in the future, in light of this, therefore, Prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, which is just another way of saying clear-minded, level-headed, not swayed by the desires or the fads or the new approaches, but having before us, always before us, our living hope, given to us by the Father through the resurrection of his son in anticipation of his return and our glorious inheritance. With our minds locked into that and our souls anchored, now get out of bed and face the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
that reminds us that we have something that is an anchor for our soul, something that holds fast no matter what we face in this world. Because of that, because of that truth which I pray would be impressed and planted and grown in our hearts, because of that, we can say, as Paul did, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Thank you for Christ through whom this is all possible. In his name, amen.